Hey there, welcome to the Oxford Comment. My name is Sara, and I'm a multimedia producer in the New York office of Oxford University Press, and also your host for this episode, which is going to take a look at the connections between our bodies and the world around us. I spoke with Carl and Iris Shriver, co-authors of Living with the Stars, about tiny microbes, giant planets, and everything in between. I started by asking them about their interests, and you might be surprised by the difference between their areas of expertise. So I'm a physician. Uh, I'm a professor of pathology and pediatrics at Stanford University, where I direct the Diagnostic Molecular Pathology Laboratory, and I provide patient care by diagnosing inherited diseases and by diagnosing and following therapy responses in patients with cancer based on the DNA changes that are cancer-related um, that we find in them. I also teach residents and fellows in pathology and genetics, and I lead a research lab. And I'm an astrophysicist, and I'm particularly interested in the sun and stars like it. Um, and I work on understanding the sun's magnetism, uh, which causes big explosions at time on the sun. And I'd like to understand why that is and what the consequences are on the planets and human technology. And every day I investigate the conditions on the, in the sun's atmosphere uh, with instruments that we've built to observe it. And how did you uh, become interested in your line of work? In our line of work, you know, I just always was fascinated with genetics and um, wanted to learn as much as possible about um, how the DNA influences health and disease. Because as a physician who is a pathologist, that's, that's really, you know, what, what I do. I study um, disease and, and conditions that influence the body and how our body reacts to that. And, and I've been interested in physics from high school onward. So I started studying physics with astrophysics on the side. And then I realized, well, actually, I had, I had much more interest in astrophysics. So I started studying that, focused on stars, and then realized that stars will, for the longest time, just be points in the sky. And there's this one nearby star, the sun, where we can see everything in detail. So I shifted my attention to the sun. And that's what I've been doing for the past uh, few decades by now. And how did you two decide to collaborate on this, and what led you to writing the book? Our book is based on many conversations in which Carl and I talked about a multitude of topics from our everyday professional lives. So on the one hand, you have a physician who is you know, really focused on the wonders of the DNA, and then on the other hand, you have Carl as an astrophysicist exploring the secrets of the sun and other stars. And you know, I always thought, for example, that DNA was tiny and his universe was big, but then we started looking at things and realized that we each have about two yards of DNA in each one of our about 50 trillion cells. And if you put all of that back to back from one person only, you can go around the world about two million times to the moon and back about 130,000 times and even to the sun and back about 333 times and that's just amazing you know so there are so many different scales and what we think is tiny is actually really really large and connected to other things as well and so the more we asked and followed up on our questions to each other the more that we discovered that our seemingly really disjoint professional fields had far more connections than we ever imagined possible yeah I, it seems like uh, two very separate realms of science, but I think your work is interdisciplinary and um, there's more connections than people realize. There are lots of connections and 
for me, much of the story that is now in the book started when I was working on a, a summer school for beginning researchers uh, for NASA. And that taught me also outside my own field about all the connections between the sun and the earth. And when I came home, uh, and we had one of these many discussions at home uh, about all the things that happened, we started to realize that, yes, th these connections reach all the way down into our very own bodies. And it's as simple as starting from the sunlight that falls on plants that makes them grow, which we eat. So we're eating something that is, in a sense, sunlight, which is a nuclear reaction in the depths of the star. Um, and and as we explored this, we saw more and more of these connections. And every time we asked a question, countered a question, and then and then did a lot of reading and discovered more of those connections. It was a fascinating journey, really. And for a while, we could really merge our fields. And now we call ourselves astrophysicians. We really wanted to tell a story and aim to create a sense of wonder, as we found that in ourselves. We really kept the book pretty straightforward. And to make it even more accessible, actually, each chapter also starts with a quote or multiple quotes and ends with key points to just recap the most important things. And we weave in lots of stories also about interesting people, their tribulations and the discoveries they made or to which they uh, contributed. So, um, for example, on the medicine side, there's a story of a patient, H.M., who couldn't make any new memories after he had surgical brain damage. And this was, of course, a tremendous tragedy for him, but he was a very generous person and shared his day-to-day -day experience with researchers and so tremendously helped advance brain science. And then there's also the story of Dr. Janet Rowley, who showed actually that cancer results from DNA changes and does not exclusively precede them. And she was the one who, for the very first time, found a rearrangement of segments of genetic material between chromosomes, and we call that chromosome translocation. And she found that in a form of leukemia, which at the time was absolutely groundbreaking. And the other thing is that as we were reading about um, all those processes we had to fit into the story, we became interested in how those discoveries themselves were made. And then, of course, you realize that these people that discovered things, they didn't know what they were looking at. They, they didn't understand. Nobody had ever pieced that together. So uh, in, in a way, you'll find stories about how things are or how we now think that they are, but also how they learned about how things are. And we hope that that all helps. So you'll, you'll see Pierre and Marie Curie working on radioactivity before anybody knew what it was. Um, there's Alfred Wegener, just to mention another, who, who started to explore that continents drifted. Now we all realize that they do. Back then, he ran into this wall of disbelief that his colleagues just couldn't figure out how this could happen because nobody knew the forces. So there's all that, all those stories, and we hope that helps to, to understand and clarify all the things that are going on around and inside us. So one of the things that you have explained is that we aren't as humans, we aren't the same as we were years, weeks, or, or days ago, and that our, our bodies are constantly changing. You know, what it comes down to is that we are intrinsically impermanent. Our body is continually rebuilt and forever changing in terms of its components and therefore also as a whole. We are shaped by the chemical components that come into us, and they just travel with us for a while before they are then discarded and left behind again, and we have to incorporate and collect new ones. So we're not just taking in and burning fuel like a car would, for example, but actually we use our food to really rebuild our bodies. And we do that over and over again throughout our lifetimes. So the chemicals that we take in by eating and drinking and breathing 
they just become part of us temporarily and they help power our bodies but we also need those um, nutrients to repair our tissues and to replace our cells and that happens all the time throughout our lifetime and you know of course on our in our day-to-day -day lives we're totally oblivious to all this action and we only become aware of it and often quite acutely aware when our body breaks right when when you know it what malfunctions when we have periods of illness and like I said pathologists who are the medical specialists who diagnose diseases and their causes also study the responses of the body to such diseases and to the treatments given but it's really important to realize that um, although that's brought home to me in my daily work all the time very little of our physical bodies last for more than a few years and that is completely at odds with how we perceive ourselves right we always think yeah sure you know when you when you're born you're a different person than when you're a grown-up but then we have these feelings of continuity over a lifetime but rather than fixed we're really more like a pattern or a process and it's stable enough I mean you can certainly recognize yourself and friends over time in terms of both your body and your personality but we're not at all fixed and it's not just humans it's everything around us all parts of any organism on earth um, are continuously changing replacing and recycling and it's that transience of the body and that flow of energy and matter uh, needed to counter that transience that led us to explore the interconnectedness uh, of the universe really and when you talk about um, cycles of the body um, how does that relate to the cycles on Earth? Well, um, we are we are tied to the cycles of the seasons. We're tied to the cycles of the plant life. We're tied to the cycles of how carbon dioxide and carbon moves through plants and eventually into the planet and through our bodies. And this is this is really a story of linkage. Uh, in a sense, life developed on this planet because it's suitable for it. But conversely life on this planet has actually changed it. Just the very fact that there's, there's oxygen in the atmosphere is because there is life on the planet. It started with plants that transformed carbon dioxide into what for them is a waste product, oxygen. But once oxygen came about, which doesn't exist on other planets uh, that don't have life in any abundance, um, life like we are, uh, animals, became possible. So all of that really is, is connected that way and we keep adjusting. Uh, we life keep adjusting to what the planet offers and we keep changing the planetary environment. It's a word that I guess it's a word like terraforming. It's something that's come up in in science recently and it's been around in science fiction but I don't think we, we really realize that it applies to our own planet. It's not that we would go somewhere and terraform another planet so we could live on it. It's actually going on on this very planet itself. So we're, we life and the planet, all the cycles that have to do with um, the volcanic eruptions and, and tectonic plates and weathering of, of rocks on the planet, all of that is, is in effect the same pattern that sustains our life. So all of these cycles link into each other. It's a very complex and, and very interesting web to start thinking about it. Yeah, and it's important to realize that life and its environment can mutually adjust to the changes in each other as long as these changes are slow enough for adjustments to occur and and of course there's plenty of time and the life-sustaining web of chemical cycles 
not only spans all living organisms, it also extends well beyond the biosphere, connecting, like Carl said, to geological cycles that have existed since the birth of the planet. And there's a lot of this now in the news, of course. I mean, Carl called it terraforming, but uh, we can even take it to climate change, um, which normally happens very slowly, but um, it can be also induced, as we know, by human activity, as we've seen recently. And uh, it may appear relatively small and, and slow on a human time scale, because in general, the atmosphere, the oceans and the ice fields are vast reservoirs of energy and water. But once in motion, these effects can be really profound and exceptionally hard to stop. And that's really what we see now. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about stopping these effects or reversing them. But human-induced climate change is, you know, one representation of those cycles where things become very complex very rapidly and where we just don't have control. Now, bringing the conversation outside of the planet, are we made of stardust? Yeah, we do. It's a big part of the story. Um, as far as we now know, uh, hydrogen was the one element that really is in our bodies that was there from the very beginning of the universe. Uh, the beginning of the universe also had a lot of helium in it, but we don't do helium uh, with chemistry very well. So all the other elements were formed after. Um, and, and it's even more complicated. That it's not just that they were formed after. Some of them just haven't been on Earth for a very long time. So, for example, um, carbon, very important for all life, very important as a component in our body. Uh, most of the carbon on Earth has been there since the Earth was formed, some four and a half billion years ago. But a lot of it continues to rain onto our planet. We keep capturing planetary, cometary dusts, uh, asteroid dusts, 40,000 tons of of that material come down on the planet every day, we estimate. So some of the carbon in your body um, has been in the universe for billions of years, but it hasn't been on Earth for anywhere nearly as long. Um, and then there's that intermediate part that when you say, well, where does that element, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, all those heavier elements than, than hydrogen come from, they weren't there at the beginning of the universe. Somehow they're here on Earth, well, that happened in the stars, and the stars basically burn, transform, have nuclear fusion in their interior, where they take hydrogen, form helium, and then carbon, and then nitrogen, and oxygen, and ever heavier elements. And, and at the very ends of their lives, um, just about all stars throw some material back into the gas around them. Uh, they either explode as a whole in what we know as a supernova, or they throw off their outer layers. So all that material that was newly formed then in these stars is mixed with the gas already there. Out of that, a new star forms, which has its own planets. So it's now richer in heavier elements. And this may ha have happened a couple of times before eventually our own planetary system formed. So we really are a mix of, of that really oldest 15 billion year old hydrogen uh, with four and a half billion years old uh, or, or, or more uh, of the heavier elements. And even that is mixed with, with uh, some elements that, that were made even more recently than that. This is this rain down to Earth. So we're an interesting mix of stardust. It's just amazing, you know, it's so cool because we live on this large isolated rock in the total emptiness of interstellar space. And we make remarkably efficient use of this building material that's all around us. And that literally is stardust. It's, it's incredible. 
people feel like we're isolated and we're all alone in the universe, but uh, it just it gives you perspective of how connected we really are, that there are actual elements of stardust in our bodies. And are, are some of these elements, did you say, are radioactive? Some of them are indeed radioactive. Um, there's this one that, that uh, has been known for a long time because it's so useful for something, uh, which is called carbon-14. Carbon comes in different forms. There's a carbon-12, which is a stable form, and there's a carbon that has a slightly different uh, constitution deep in its, in its core um, that makes it, give, so we give it another name. We call it carbon-14. But carbon-14 doesn't live forever. Carbon-14 is not the stable form. It can only exist for a few thousand years. So because we have carbon-14 everywhere we look, and with that, a little bit of radioactivity everywhere we look, including in our bodies, um, people realize, well, that can't be, that some, something is missing here. If, if, if it lives for 5,000 years and the planet is a million times older than that, there shouldn't be any left. So they, they started this hunt for where this would come from, and it turns out that, well, that is in fact one of these other links to the galaxy. There are these ultra-fast particles running around, just ordinary material but, but moving at light speed, um, running through the galaxy all the time. And when that hits our atmosphere, it creates nuclear reactions way up in the atmosphere, high in the stratosphere where, where airplanes fly. Um, and that causes a little bit of that new carbon-14 to be formed. And that gets absorbed into carbon dioxide, just like all the other carbon on the world, so it goes into plants, and from plants we eat it. So we have in every one of our cells, we have a little bit of that radioactive carbon. Um, and this is not to scare you. We don't have to be worried about it. This is something that the body, any, any part, any living organism on this planet, of course, has had since the beginning of time. So we have pretty efficient repair mechanisms. But the nice thing is, it, it also is a tool. Uh, because that carbon-14 decays after a while, uh, if we stop exchanging carbon dioxide, if we stop eating, as in when we die, um, that carbon-14 begins to decay, and then we can actually use how much is left to date a thing. So carbon dating is based on that same carbon-14 that we were just talking about. Yeah, and when we trace the pathways of our impermanence, as I said before, we, we can realize that the components of our bodies connect us to, of course, the plants and animals around us, the bacteria within us, to volcanoes, comets, cosmic rays, the sun's light, and actually all the way to the birth and death throes of stars throughout our own galaxy and to the beginning of the universe itself. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. Has there, has there been any recent developments in, in astronomy or the astrophysics world that um, you're particularly excited about or anything that's happened recently? There's so many things we, we suddenly can look at because our telescopes are so powerful and and because our computers are now so powerful. We can actually put experiments sometimes in a computer and discover things of how to look at the universe. So I, I think the fact that we now know that there are so many planets out there is astonishing. Um, what, what that allows us to do uh, is something very interesting. It, it, this is one of these other stories that, that we stumbled on at some point. When, when I, as a person, would come to this planet for the very first time, and I would look at people, and I would ask myself, how do I know these people change over their lifetimes? How do I see them age? Because I've not been there long enough to see people age, right? Well, I can look at people. I can say I see small and young ones, and I see uh, ones that have difficulty. I can learn about aging by just sort of counting 
how many people there are in what stage of life. And that's exactly what we can now do with the stars and the planetary systems. There's so many of them that we can literally look at a star like the sun was when it was young. Or we can look at a star like the sun will be billions of years from now. And similarly, we can see things about how planetary systems evolve. We can see them form. We, sometimes we, we now see this very early stage of a disk of dust and gas in which there aren't any planets yet. It's just this, this fuzzy cloud that sits around a beginning star. Um, there are others where we can see the, 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 the planets hoover, vacuuming up, in a, in a sense, the material around them so that they grow and grow as they accumulate all this gas. Um, we see planets that, that are so close to their stars that if they have anything on them like, uh, like we are familiar with, like the materials like silicon and iron and such, that, that they're going to have rain of molten iron. Um, and we know, we know about planets that are frozen. So suddenly we have this, this enormous observational reach that we can just see what happened in the past and the future by just looking at our neighbors. And I think that's very exciting. And uh, Iris, is there, is there anything going on in uh, genetics and pathology that has been really exciting lately? Oh, absolutely. You know, the first version of the human genome was, was ready, I think, in 2003. But that was really just a draft. And now we can use the human genome for diagnostics. So we can actually look at pieces of the human genome or even at the human genome almost as a whole and try to find a diagnosis for a child that otherwise really would have gone on an odyssey um, step by step and year by year before a diagnosis could or could not be made. So we can often now find the genetic reason for a child with, with a genetic abnormality. And also in cancer patients, and that's an area that I'm particularly excited about now, we can really look at the pathways within the cells where there are multiple mutations, um, so changes in genes in different pathways that help drive the cancers or that can um, actually be targeted by drugs so that the cancer is stopped in its tracks at least for a while. And um, we learn more and more about these networks, about these pathways. And we can follow cancer patients over time when they have received therapy and then change therapy quickly when um, the cancer changes because the cancer has changes that accumulate in DNA over time. So we become much more personalized in how we practice medicine and much more targeted in a way. And I think that we'll see very big changes in how we treat our cancer patients and hopefully we can turn it into a chronic disease at some point uh, before we really find a cure for this very, very diverse group of conditions. And my next question is for just for both of you. Um, was there anything while writing this book and, and conducting your research and while you were talking to people that um, that really surprised you? For me, it was it was the fact that we are rebuilding the body all the time. I had always had this mental picture, being a physicist, um, that we were we were we were basically uh, well. When you're born, you have to grow, but after you reach adulthood, I thought you'd basically stay the way you were uh, and you would take in food and the food would just go through your body. You'd take out some energy to keep you going and it would leave it again. And I hadn't, I hadn't at all realized that all of the stuff in our body, all of the cells in our body are all the time dying and being replaced by new ones. So that 
we're really, on average, I think, when we went through the numbers for our book, on average, we're seven years old. And I think that's a fascinating feeling, but I had never realized that that was the case. Yeah. The links that we talk about in the story of our bodies are really not just philosophical connections between sciences, but they involve physical connections to what we consider to be nature outside us, right? I mean, this is kind of gross, but if you think about it, the cells in our bodies are outnumbered by microbes, so by bacteria and such that live in our guts and on our skin, by approximately 10 to 1. So that's a population that we call the microbiome. And once you get over the yuck factor, it's really fascinating that we have so many bacteria that actually help us live. And it's a mutual relationship where you know we benefit from their activities, for example, when we have to digest our food. And they are in this nice, cushy environment that is kind of stable and where the nutrients and water are just supplied by the host. And, and you know, that is one of those links that I thought was really quite fascinating that I, you know, I had sort of heard about, but I never really thought about it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and talking with me more about this fascinating topic. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. Carl and Iris's book is called Living with the Stars, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Oxford Comment. Our episodes can also be found on SoundCloud and iTunes.